This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Hello and welcome to episode 80 of Aviation Careers Podcast, a show where we bring you inside aviation careers and also try to inspire you to move forward in your career and reach your career goal. You know, many of you are interested in working overseas because you've heard foreign pilots are paid very well. Well, today I have with me someone who will help us understand more about the benefits and challenges of flying internationally. Ed Abraham is an international pilot advisor at Cage Marshall Consulting. If you remember, we had Angie on here, Angie Marshall, in episode 77. So I encourage you to go listen to that. You know, Ed is living proof that pilots can go overseas to fly and return with positive results. Based on his years of experience as an aviation professional, as a successful interviewee, Ed has a wealth of knowledge to help other international applicants. Now, whether you are going from the U.S. to an international company or interested in exploring the possibilities of applying to an overseas position, Ed should be your first call. You know, he can offer his expertise and recommendations to help you land the international interview and job more quickly and with less frustration. Well, Ed, welcome to Aviation Careers Podcast. Thank you, Carl. Glad to be here. You know, Ed, what's interesting is the fact that so many people hear so many different things about what it's like to to work overseas. They see things on the on the bulletin boards. They hear their friends talk about it. Uh, the biggest thing is, oh, you're going to make a whole bunch of money. You're going to come back here and retire. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna try to you know either squash some of the myths that you hear online or verify some of those things. Uh, so, Ed, I really appreciate you doing this, but. You know, let's let's start off on a positive note and uh, and talk a little bit about uh, about you, Ed. I mean, you you've been flying for how many years, and and how did you get into aviation? Uh, I started flying in 1989, and uh, my first airline career was in 1998, uh, and then till 2007, and that's when I had the opportunity to go overseas. Uh, from uh, 2007 till April of uh, 2014. Uh, so my first uh, flying experience was uh, I was 10 years old and uh, my father uh, knew the captain of a Pan Am uh, Airlines and we were flying in that airplane and I went to the cockpit in that time and uh, since then I was hooked. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And you're still passionate about it, obviously. That's true. Till today's date, uh, every flight I, you know, I go to, it seems to me is my first flight. Awesome. So how did you go from the 10-year-old interested in uh, flying and in in checking out a cockpit of an airliner to now flying in a, a large uh, legacy airline? Uh, first, when I graduated from high school, I went to uh, an aviation uh, university. Uh, I got my four-year uh, uh, bachelor's degree in, in, in aviation science uh, with a minor in accounting uh, just to kind of have a backup. Everyone was giving us the advice in those days that it's, it's a very good thing to have a backup degree just in case if anything happened. Uh, after I graduated from uh, the undergrad, uh, unfortunately, uh, Pan Am, Eastern, and the big midway, they all oh, went yeah. bankrupt. Uh, so really, I had no other choice except to further my education, and that's when I went and did my MBA in aviation management. Uh, and then till start doing flight instructions, did some corporate flying uh, till the market opened up again, and then when I joined, and uh, no regrets ever since. <laughs> well, it, you know, during this period. Uh you know, obviously you've been furloughed and or had a tough time finding jobs. You you were able to, to work overseas, and obviously that's what we're going to talk about right now, primarily talking about U.S. Uh, pilots uh, flying overseas. Um, but, you know, did you, you enjoy your experience and also maybe talk a little bit about the benefits of flying overseas? Yes, uh, Carl. It's, it's really one of the best experience I've ever had, and uh, I never regret it, and I encourage everyone, if they have the opportunity, uh, even if they take a leave of absence for one year just to do it, it's a different flying environment, which can be challenging at times, 
uh, really you learn different rules and regulations, uh, different than the FARs, uh, which kind of uh, kind of broaden your perspective about flying. And also you can look at flying from a different uh, set of eyes instead of only from how we look at things. Uh, also, it's a, it's a kind of an exposure to different cultures, uh, different customs, different habits, different even food. Uh, so, so really, it's it's a great experience, and I call it is is a very very wealthy and a good investment. Well, you got me with the the experiencing the different foods. I mean, that that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm sure you've you've experienced all different types of cuisine. It'd be fascinating to hear about some of those. But uh, there's uh, the cultures. You know, what's interesting, like you said, you know, I, I do some flying internationally, and um, I'm sure you agree that you really don't realize a culture until you get there. You can read about it in the books, but it's not until you actually get on their soil that that you really can actually engage and, and coalesce everything about that culture. Yes, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting when you mention about food. You know, we all have different uh, appetites for different foods and different diets. Uh, if you are really open to the idea of trying uh, new different food, uh, it will be a great experience for you because uh, you can really have the ethnic food prepare, prepared not to the American taste, <laughs> as prepared to their own taste. You know, which is really uh, is, a, is a completely different. Uh, but on the other hand, unfortunately, if you're not very open-minded about trying different food, it can be really uh, difficult at times. Basically, you turn to either vegetarian or you live on fruits and vegetables and so forth. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I did a lot of flying around Mexico for a while, and I did not realize that the food in Mexico is different than the Mexican food we get here in the U.S., uh, much different. So there, that's a good example. I, I was and I was absolutely. I love the food in Mexico, uh, but that's that's one of the big benefits is you get to enjoy that. But there's also, you know, there's a financial benefit. I think, um, and is is that financial benefit real? Is my question. Uh, it is real, okay. and it is very very real. Uh, and uh, I tell you, because overseas you get paid on a salary basis, not on an hourly basis. Uh, so, you know very well when you start your contract overseas, you can budget from day one how much you need and how much you want to save. Most of the time, you get double uh, the pay where the regional get paid here and sometimes up to triple at the amount. Wow. Most airlines really, the big, kind of comparatively the big legacy carrier, even some small carriers, uh, they pay pretty much on average of a legacy pilot here. Hmm. Uh, so the pay, uh, you're absolutely correct. You know, it is, if you go with a mindset of saying, okay, I'm going to go overseas for five years because this is my last five years of a flying professionally because I want to retire after that. Uh, if you're a really determined person, you can make it. Hmm. Now, you, you had... Uh mentioned about pay. Now, can an FO, a first officer, go over, or is it just captains that they hire overseas? Uh, they can go as an FO, but not the opportunity and not there as wide as for captains. Uh, the reason behind that, because most of the locals, they start as FO in those airlines. And overseas is kind of a little bit different than here. Uh, and what I mean by that is even though they are private airlines owned by private corporations or private individuals, the country or there are some rules and regulations, they force them to hire locals. So they have to have a percentage of their pilots as local pilots. In addition, some countries, they maxima, I mean, they, they, they make our contract as an expat pilot uh, up to a maximum of three years. So after three years, believe it or not, you like it or not, you'll be done with your contract. Uh, of course, some countries, they go one year up to five years. Uh, but some of them are renewable, some of them are not. So as a first officer, uh, what I recommend is, especially in today's environment, because the international market is opened and reminds me in 2006, 2007, uh, many airlines nowadays, I mean, in the international market, are providing what they call direct entry captain. Uh, even though you've never been a, a captain before, 
But if you have a good type rating on that airplane and you were an FO, they don't mind to give you a new type rating as a captain. Interesting, interesting. So if somebody, say, has an Airbus or a Boeing first officer type rating in the U.S. and has maybe 5,000 hours, they could apply to be a captain overseas. That's correct, Carl. Interesting. <clears throat> Wow, that's now that's fascinating. That that could, I'm sure a lot of people's ears went up on that one. <laughs> and uh, but you know another thing too, by the way, you, you mentioned overseas. Uh, just so that people understand, what what different countries are we talking about? What what is the range like you, you folks uh, deal with? And the countries, yeah, like Europe and that type. Uh, well, of. Europe kind of an exception. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, uh, when 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 we talk about uh, overseas market. Is you really is the Euro Asia market, uh, the Far East market, and Southeast Asia market, and African and Middle East market. Okay. Yeah, and they so they. Yeah, I just want to make sure people had that that that, that was clear because normally uh, you're not going to see so much uh, like going to Italy, France, that type of thing. We're talking, and most conversations are about China as a big one. You know, everybody talks about China on the forums, that type of thing. Um, Royal Jordanian or any of the Jordanian airlines, you know, that type of thing. That's, that's been also a fascinating uh, of many people. You know, it's been great for people to go over there, especially, like you said, during the downturns. Um, so the, the, the thing is, though, when they do go overseas, I know there's a lot of challenges for people psychologically, you know, because they're like, I don't think I could do that. It's, uh, it's going to be difficult for me to apply. I mean, how, how does someone find out about these jobs overseas? Uh very easy call. I mean, especially when the internet nowadays, you know, basically you can put either uh, certain websites or uh, just put certain countries and put pilots and so forth and you can find out. But my advice is to start with uh, the airlines themselves. If if you are interested to work in a certain country, uh, just type, find out what is the national airline of that country and then you can go directly to their Website. I give you an example. Turkish Airlines now they are hiring pilots. Uh, the best way to go to Turkish Airlines go to their website and apply directly to them. Uh, the, you get two benefits by doing this. Number one, uh, you are cutting the middleman, which is the recruiting company. And uh, number two, uh, there is no cut in in your pay uh, because most of the time you know very well when you go through a recruiter. And uh, the recruiter has make a living, and uh, you know, I mean, you cannot fault them for that. Uh, but so, what happens is basically the airline will pay the recruiter a certain amount, and the recruiter will pay you a certain amount. Uh, that's one way of doing it. The other way, if you really want to have a big exposure to everywhere in the market, you pick up a good good recruiter. I'm not going to mention names because I dealt with many of them, so I don't want anybody to think I'm favoring one of them over another. Right. But if you go to any website of a good recruiter company, especially they are mainly in Europe, and they are, we have a couple of Americans ones. They are not bad. Uh, but they will give you a good exposure to different airlines and different contracts, and you can compare. Uh, hopefully you can compare Apple to Apple. Great, great. And, and, of course, you know, I won't mention names now, but we've had a, some of them on the show here, so you can go back to some of the past episodes and listen to them and see what they, they think as far as uh, flying overseas. Some some specialize in different areas. Uh, some specialize on, say, China, et cetera, and, and they have certain ends with certain airlines. But uh, But like you said, you can go directly to the airline. That's something a lot of people are afraid to do. Um, but how would they, if they're going to apply for their, a, a specific airline, they're going straight to it, uh, they might feel like they're alone in the whole process and they don't have anybody else to help them. How can they get help in the process of applying? Uh, well, you know, Cage uh, Marshall Consulting is, a, is the best, you know, one of the best places to go to. And I, I this is how I started my process. You start with uh, a good consulting firm that they can give you the layout, they can give you the fundamentals. And then you can build, from there, you can build the blocks as you're going to the airlines. Uh, so really what you need to do is to find someone just to give you kind of the ropes, the directions, and so forth. And also, uh, believe it or not, uh, we can help them out also during the interview process. Because many of those airlines, either we have contact with them or we know where to find the informations and the literatures regarding their interview process. 
So this interview process, maybe you can you know help us understand it. Is it uh, similar to the process in the U.S. or is it different? You know, the interview process, mainly most of the kind of comparatively legacy carriers overseas, they have a pretty much, you know, a standard uh, interview process, uh, except some, some of them, they add a, a SIM evaluation. Some of them, they add a CRM evaluation. Some of them, they add a psych test and so forth. Uh, pretty much they are all uh, the same in terms of the interview process and so forth. A good reputable airline, that one thing good about them as well, they will fly you over on their, on their airlines uh, or on their metal, uh, depends on where you are located. And they pay for your hotel, they pay even some of them in China, believe it or not, they pay you per diem when you are there and uh, they fly you back. And the nice thing about them as well, that before you leave home, you will know your itinerary over there, either three days, four days, or seven days, and and you come back. Uh, some of them, they require a lot of medical tests. Some of them, they don't require medical tests as long as you have your FAA license. Uh, so this is how, how they differ from. But in general, uh, they are pretty much the same, unless... A small startup carriers in certain part of the world, believe it or not, they will take you based on your resume, your licenses, and your medical. So basically, there's no interview. Interesting. And now, what would you do when you get there? You have to get new licenses, or, or how does that work? Great question, Carl. You know, some, some countries, yes, you have to go through the whole process of their own regulations, which by, I mean by that is you take your their uh, written exam. <clears throat> Some of them, believe it or not, they have exact the same as our ATP written exam, but you still have to take it because it's stamped by their uh, uh, regulation or regulators. Uh, Some of them, basically, you go through the whole process is you have to go through ground school, you have to go through the SIM training, and then, believe it or not, you finish your uh, sim training, you go line training, and then you get a, a line check by one of their uh, Fed guys. Uh, so it depends on really the country. It depends on their regulations and so forth. Uh, just kind of, a, uh, if, if you don't mind, if I can bring a very quick point here. Uh, the only, we, we are the only place in the world which we use FAA. Uh, everybody else, they are trying to shift to mainly to the European, which is the JAA, mm-hmm. and now they call them EASA. Uh, so it's, a, it's kind of a, a, a different set of rules, different set of regulations. Uh, we have a lot of in common, don't get me wrong, uh, but also the wording is a little bit different. So when you go uh, overseas to the minimum, to the minimum, you're going to take a written exams about their laws and regulations. So what if now, say I want to do that before I go. Can I do that, like in the U.S.? Uh, a great question, Carl. You know, some of them, uh, they let you do that if they are advanced countries and they have it online. Uh, unfortunately, some of them, they don't until uh, you arrive there. Good thing is when you, if, if the airline and the country is not uh, set for you to take the exam online, they pay you as from the day you leave home, you get the, uh, some of them they say, okay, you have one chance. Some of them they have two chances. Some of them they say, you know, you have three chances to pass the exam. Uh, but most of the time when you arrive there, it's the same thing when we have here, like we have the red book to, uh, to study for the ATP and so forth. They have materials to help you out to pass the exam. And I can tell you from my experience, which I lived in five different countries, and I've seen those, probably the failure rate is less than half percent. Oh, wow. That's pretty low. So that, that's good. That's encouraging news. Um, but would it be better for me if I'm going to apply overseas to get my EASA or JAA uh, rating? Uh, would that make me more eligible for a job? A matter of fact, will make you more eligible and make you more competitive. Right. Uh, the only... 
issue with that is a very long process to do it by yourself if you're not being sponsored by an airline. It takes about a year and a half to do it. Oh, wow. Wow. And I, I'm, I'm curious. I don't know if you know what the cost of that would be to go through that process. And the cost, it will be about almost when I looked at it last time, is about $3,700. Oh, okay. So it's not, not crazy, but it's still, it's still another expense. Yeah, uh, it, it is, Carl, because think about when you're an experienced professional pilot after all these years, you know, you don't expect that you're going to pay any more for your training because you expect the airline will do that. Right, right. Huh, interesting. Is there anything else about the interview process that, that uh, any general advice you would give? Uh, you know, it's the same as any any interview when you go to. Go with an open mind, prepare yourself, get the professional help, as my, you know, and really go with a very, very positive attitude. And if you don't want the job, don't go. Right, right. Well, I tell you, it sounds interesting. I mean, you've actually got my, my interest up here. This is really, really fascinating. Um, but, you know, that process of the interview, it's all, these are all technicalities. But let's, let's, let's switch this to actually, actually doing it. Let's, let's go to actually living there. Um, I know that these countries and these communities and all these cultures are wonderful, but I'm sure there's, there's got to be some challenges uh, to living overseas, uh, especially for uh, Americans, et cetera, that haven't been to other cultures. But, are there some common things that you've heard that are challenges of living overseas? Uh, yes, there are, there are many, many common things. But I tell you, uh, Carl, is the challenge starts with applying for the working visa. Okay. Uh, it's kind of, you know, a lot of people, they forget that when you go and work overseas, you need a working visa before you leave home. In each country, they have a completely different procedure, different challenges, different requirement when you apply for a working visa. It depends on the airlines that you're applying to. Some of them, they are very well prepared. Even the embassy, they know about them. Some new startup airlines, they, the embassy has no idea that there's a new airline in their own country. And there's a living example last year in the summer uh, certain countries, certain airline, it was a startup airline, and one of the American pilots, he was here, he lives in Florida, so they sent him all the way to Houston to get the visa. Uh, the poor guy, he paid the ticket all the way to Houston to go and apply for the visa. He arrived to the embassy, and they told him, well, we have no idea what the airline is. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, don't get me wrong, but by the end of the day, he got the visa, even after two tries, and the, the airline reimbursed him for all his expenses. But I'm just saying, like, kind of, is when you think about it, you remember when you mentioned kind of there's a psychological thing when you're trying to find another place. So this is kind of the first hiccup, if I may call it, you right. know. Uh, but if you had an open mind and, and you know that, hey, I'm going to a different place, you know, so I expect some challenges and I look at it from a positive point of view, this is kind of the thing. The other common, uh, really, the, the challenge is the language. Uh, a lot of guys, they, they, they land in, in, in a new country and they expect everybody, you know, speaks English. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure in, in your travels to Mexico, that, that that's not the case. <laughs> no. You know, and, and of course, the most frustrating one is when you arrive, the immigration officer. <laughs> because this is your first person that you have a contact with in that country, you know. And when they don't speak English, you know, and then you kind of try to do everything possible to tell them why you are here, uh, where you came from, and so forth, and and you know, so that's kind of one of the uh, the, the biggest challenge, which which we all have uh, sometimes uh, is a good thing and is a bad thing because the good thing is force you to learn certain words and new language, uh, and you know, of course. Uh, that on the other hand, sometimes it, it, you can have a hard time, you know, finding your way to, to go back home, uh, especially, you know, after a nice dinner or so forth. Uh, the other uh, challenge we, we may face is uh, many overseas countries, they depend on public transportation. Uh, we don't, you know, I mean, I, I'm for, for example, I always drive my car even to go to the supermarket. You know, uh, so uh, and, and on the other hand, overseas, you see 
the majority of the populations, they use uh, public transportation. So here that comes, you know, it's a different set of rules, different way of, the system is completely different in terms of public transportation. So that's kind of another challenge for us. Um, the other challenges we have in terms of the living conditions, uh, some airlines uh, provide you with the, with the hotel. And, 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 and I, I have to say, uh, the majority of the airlines, they provide you with five stars hotels uh, when you're staying. Uh, but then to find an apartment or a house for you, if you're taking your family with you as well, uh, that can be challenging as well. Interesting. And, you know, going back to, uh, I'm assuming apartments are somewhat similar to in the U.S. or, or are they different? Uh, some of them are different. If you really, uh, if you get the modern apartments, they are mainly similar to the U.S. But if the old, old style apartments, especially if they are certain part of the world, they are really, really small. <laughs> right, right. And that's something <laughs> you know what I mean by that. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it almost like New York style flat, you know. Yes. Or, or you yeah. know, it's the it's what's interesting is that when you do go overseas, uh, you just mentioned public transportation now. Me, as an American, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, a yellow cab or a bus with air conditioning, et cetera. Um, I know from my experience, like in South America and all, sometimes these buses, you're crammed in there, and there is no air conditioning. Uh, <laughs> and there's not the, and there's, uh, there's taxis, but the taxis can be very expensive, very expensive. I'm sure it's similar, I, I would think, over in other countries. Both very, very true statement, Carl. You know, <laughs> I mean, you said it for me. It's funny, though, the, the public transportation in some places is, is the buses are incredibly inexpensive. Uh, you can get to so many different places. And I think what you said was very important. If you learn certain key phrases uh, and don't be, be afraid. I mean, I, I just bring a book with me, a travel uh, guide to, in whatever language, whatever country I'm in. And I try, and a lot, every so often you find someone who speaks English, and, and they'll help you out. Uh, but they kind of get the idea of what you want to do. But if you have something very specific you want to do, you're right, there is a challenge. I mean, I wanted to go to a specific church in a specific part of town, and it, it was a, a bit of a challenge to get that across. So that, that, that's one of the challenges. But those are little things. Those are kind of fun challenges, actually. Um, the but But some of the other challenges I think people have concerns with are... Uh, I think some of the habits of people that are different here in the in the U.S. and and then bringing your your family over there. I think those are two different things. Uh, but could you talk towards that as far as bringing your your family there and also some of the things that are are culturally maybe different that we may have a tough time adjusting to? Yes, uh, family. You know, I I recommend to every uh, pilot who wants to go overseas. There are two bases for contracts. And uh, there's one contract, they call it a commuting contract, which is basically based on you can go overseas for between three weeks up to six weeks, and you come home for two to four weeks off. Uh, there's, on the other hand, non-commuting contract is you go uh, overseas and you work and you get, for example, seven days off a month guaranteed. Uh, the non-commuting contract, we can divide it into two. One of them is what we call permanent contract, and the other one is non-permanent contract. Uh, the per permanent contract is basically is an open-end contract, and that's what you see, sir, uh, big international carriers, uh, nationally-owned carriers. Uh, they provide what they call permanent contract, which is an open-ended contract. This is the contract I highly recommend if you are thinking taking your family with you. If you don't have that contract, it's kind of you are already taking a gamble uh, by going there for probably a year and then coming back home. So if you taking your family uh, with you on a permanent contract, uh, you kind of you need to look at a couple of things. Uh, if you have kids going to school, so you need to look at their expenses because most of the schools overseas are private schools. And private schools, especially if they are teaching in English, they are expensive. Some good airlines, they provide what they call education uh, reimbursement. Uh, and those, what I, when I looked at all these contracts, because really that's what I do, I look at the contracts and I try to compare them. So when, when one of your 
listeners or one of our clients calls me and so I can have a good, you know, numbers to compare to. Some of them really, they pay the average, you know, a sc- uh, international school in that country, uh, which is really good. It's not going to hurt your budgeting purpose. Some of them, they pay the actual cost. Some of them really, they pay a certain amount which kind of limit you to the quality of school that you want to send your kids to. In terms of the wife, which is really very, very important because you know very well if your wife is not happy, you will never be happy. Right. Uh, so some countries, they, uh, you know, the wife can work and can live just as, you know, as any other Western country, which is that's not a problem. But even if she doesn't work, she will have the freedom to go out, to wear what she wants. You know, she can drive a car and so forth. On the other hand, there are some lucrative contracts overseas in terms of pay, in terms of benefits. But on the other hand, the wife probably is not going to be that happy because either she cannot drive or she has to wear certain, you know, uh, dresses or she has to cover certain things, you know. So there's the freedom is not there for her uh, as different countries. So really, before going overseas, if you have a good talk, a good honest communication with your family, uh, and and you decide where you want to go, because I've seen those families overseas, and I met some of them. Some of them really they are very happy, and they don't have any problem with anything, either the Western style or the different style. Uh, and some of them, believe it or not, they cannot wait to leave. But unfortunately, because they went on it, you know, the money was so blind, blinding them that they wanted to make the enough money to come back home, either to pay the mortgage or, you know, to have a better lifestyle and so forth. So just to make it a brief, uh, it, it can be challenging, but it can be rewarding as well because the kids can learn in new languages. They can have a good exposure to different cultures. The wife can have different friends. She can have good, you know, volunteering work, or she can have also an international experience if she wants to work over there. But the most, most important thing, I believe, as a pilot, you need to look at when you sign that contract, make sure it's a permanent, open-ended contract if you are taking your family with you. Interesting. That's some great advice. Um, as far as a family's concerned, one of the things that uh, I know I would be concerned with is that uh, my spouse, children, etc., would be able to, to speak with the rest of the family. Uh, do most of these countries have, uh, say, internet, like Skype and that type of thing, where, where they can talk to their family, say, do video conferencing, that type of thing? Yes. As a matter of fact, that's when, you know, I have all these technology with me. I started with Skype in 2007. And, you know, with the FaceTimes and so forth. The difference is some of them, the Internet is not on a high speed at everywhere. So that's going to be challenging because with the time difference, let's say you have eight hours difference or 10 hours difference between your hometown and the country where you're living in. So and you want to make a certain phone calls because you want to say good night to the kids or you want to say good morning to them before they go to school and unfortunately, the Internet is not as, you know, the speed is not as so basically cannot have a face time with them. Right. And it, yeah. You know, but but in, in general, uh, most of these countries that they are recruiting for pilots, they have an Internet one way or another. Interesting. You know, it's funny that happens in the U.S. too. I mean, it's not. You know, I've been to some places where the Internet was horrible and I couldn't Skype my family. So, you know, you you take it for granted a lot of times, but there are hotels in the U.S. where you just can't get a good connection. Yeah, Uh, I I don't want to mention one hotel. Just last week (laughs) (laughs) I had a problem and I thought, wow, it reminds me like flashback in overseas. And what's amazing, too, is, though, uh, you know, I've, I was uh, speaking with someone in China not long ago, and, and the connection was incredible, incredibly fast. So you never know. You never know what, you, what you're going to get. That's um, true. But I, I have to say that I have the person that goes there, and this is just my small experience, the pe- person that goes and comes back and is excited is usually the person that goes with a really open mind. Uh, I've heard people come back and say it was absolutely wonderful. Um, there are some, though, that say they want to come back uh, as soon as possible. Uh, the reason that a lot of people, I think you touched on this, is they go over there and they look at the money and they say, wow, 
you know, I can, I can do anything. I can put up with anything. Uh, but sometimes that's not always true. You, you, you can't put up, you know, money's not everything. You know, there's other parts of that equation. And you may not want to live in that, that situation. And I, and I have seen that where, where uh, the spouse or significant other has decided, hey, listen, I, I can't do this. You know, and that, that's a tough situation to be in. That's true. You're absolutely correct. Uh, and and my, my second overseas contract was uh, in that situation. The money was so good that you cannot say no to it. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, the place was, you know, really, uh, you know, I, I, I always tell clients that when, you know, when I talk to them and I mention to them, I said, you know what, when I give you $25,000 a month in your bank, the first time probably you look at it every day. Right. After the deposit. And then the second month, probably you look at it every other day. The third month, probably once a week. And then the fourth and the fifth, and you, you see what I'm going. Right, right. And then by the first year, you know, first of all, you take it for granted that you're going to pay $25,000 every month. But then you start looking at things are fundamentally important to you as a, as a human being. Uh, and the money will lose its value. So you're absolutely correct, Carly. You know, money, yes, is great. Is a great tool that we can do certain things in our life, but you're absolutely correct. You're going to be happy and you're going to be satisfied with what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you said that. Some people ask me about my career and say, well, wouldn't you want to go here or there? I said, well, I'm happy. Why would I want to change that? It's not just about the money. Uh, it's about being satisfied. And, uh, and and that's in anything in life, just in general, not, not just flying overseas. Um, but, you know, you, you touched on something there that I'm kind of interested in now. Let's, so, so the money, let's, let's get a little more granular with that if we can. Um, Let's let's look at a regional pilot, somebody who's flying anything from a Embraer one ninety to a one forty five, that type of thing. Uh, are they able to make a a good living over there? And is there some numbers you could throw out, like average or a range that they could expect to make? Yes, for the regional pilot, you know, uh, that's kind of where really you see. I met most of the overseas expat pilots. They come from the regional market. And when you look at the average overseas, I mean, average American regional pilot, how much he or she makes compared to overseas, on average, you are going to make about 2.3 times of what you're making here. Wow. So, wow, that's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, so that's on average, you know. So that's why it is a very lucrative. But as I mentioned, you know, in addition to the money, as a professional pilot, you will learn so much more in terms of flying, even believe it or not, you will learn about your own airplane because overseas is a very kind of a different environment. It depends on you as a pilot more than as a system. Uh, So that's kind of, so really you're getting paid to learn more. And I think this is the best combination. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we, uh, especially in the U.S., it's uh, you rely on the mechanics more. We we get the overview of the systems, and that's it. They don't delve as deep as they used to, like 10, 20 years ago, especially with systems in the U.S. Um, but now, now let's look at let's go to the the majors. Like, say you you have a a larger aircraft, a, a 737, an Airbus type rating, uh, or something else larger. What what can someone like that expect to make overseas? Uh, well, in China now you're there making the average twenty three thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you go to that's uh, as I mentioned, this is China. There are certain parts in 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 uh, in, in the Southeast Asia. You know, they're making about twelve thousand three hundred dollars a month, but that's kind of a commuting contract, which is very attractive because when you come home for two to three weeks, really you are doing nothing, but you're getting paid for that. Uh, so it's kind of when you when you compare by the end of the day, you're you're working uh, eight months of the year, but you're getting paid twelve months of the year. Interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of uh, you know that's where if you're we're looking only at the dollar amount and the value of the dollar. Right. That's kind of uh, you know, uh, Carl. If I can bring one issue here or one one important point uh, when you think about pay overseas. Uh, some airlines, they get paid, uh, they pay you by the euro. Right. Uh, and you know that fluctuate, the euro like today is almost equal to the dollar. Right, right. Uh, I was getting paid in the euro in 2012. 
And believe it or not, the euro was a dollar thirty six cents. Right. Okay. So if I was still working for the same company, <clears throat> I get a literally a pay cut of almost thirty percent. Right. Because but you have to bring the money back to the U.S. That's correct. You know. So the the airlines you cannot fault them because you know they are paying you the same amount every month, and this is part of their budget. You know. Uh, so let's say if you're getting paid 10,000 euros in 2012, which is equal to $13,200, and today it will be equal to $10,000. Right. You know, on the other hand, if you sign a contract today, 10,000 euros, which is $10,000, and next year the euro goes to $1.20, thus you get 20% pay raise without even thinking about it. Right. So that's something, you know, a lot of, Many, many pilots, they don't look at this when they sign on a, on a foreign country, uh, I mean, uh, the currency of the foreign country. Yeah, it's kind of like pay arbitrage, you know, you have to know a little bit about what's happening with the, with the currencies. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a good hedge fund manager. Yes, you know? yes, exactly. <laughs> it, and and that's, that's absolutely fascinating. It's a good, good point that you made is you have to look at what you're getting paid in. As a matter of fact, uh, bringing that up, uh, I have a friend that was in a, a contract in uh africa somewhere and he actually was going to be paid in the local currency which uh was worthless and uh he actually was paid in euros uh he had to bring it over in a duffel bag <laughs> <laughs> probably uh, probably i know who you're talking but, about yeah. because I, I worked in africa <laughs> yeah oh okay <laughs> we'll talk later about that but you know yeah. it's 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 absolutely fascinating to see the challenges uh, that are involved in 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 just a pay alone. Uh, you know, what do you do with your money? How do you how do you handle taxes? I mean, how is um, how is that? I guess that's a big question I hear is like, well, uh, do I pay the taxes overseas, and then do, do I have to pay the taxes back here in the U.S.? Not that we're giving tax advice, but in general, you know, what happens? As I mentioned, I just want to make sure I'm not a tax advisor. That so this is not a tax advice. Right, right. But this is kind of just a general talk, you know, to the uh, for a layman person. Uh, basically there is, uh, you know, uh, nowadays up to $97,000, the first $97,000 is a tax free, mm -hmm. but there's one trick to that is you have to establish the first year of going overseas that you have to be outside the country for 330 days, the first year. Okay. So. If you are on a commuting contract, this will never happen. So you have to pay taxes on every single dollar you make overseas. Gotcha. But if the first year you try to manage to be away from home or away from the U.S. on a 330 days, that will get you a status of an expat pilot or an expat person. From there, you can have what they call, you know, the ninety-seven thousand mark. So the first ninety-seven thousand dollars you make is a tax-free, and then after that is basically, uh, you know, there are two ways. If you are going as a subcontractor, you're going to file Form C, and of course, if you are going as an employee, you're going to file as a W two form, which is the ten forty. Airlines overseas, some of them, they pay taxes on your behalf for that country. So what happens, you bring that amount and your accountant will look at it and say, okay, if, if what you made, you paid this amount in taxes to the U.S., if the foreign country you paid more, you don't pay a penny in the U.S. taxes. But if you paid less, you pay the difference to the U.S. government. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. And, 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 you know, and as I mentioned, this is not a tax advice. This is just from my own personal experience. You know, if you go on a subcontractor basis, you have more, you know, you know, as from your business, you have more tax deductions, you know, on if you go as an employee. Right. And, and you know, that's just a, a good point here we should make is that whenever you're making these decisions, really, uh, you should talk to an accountant about this and somebody or a tax advisor. Um, you know, I've done work overseas, and it was really important to have these conversations because there's little things that you don't think about. Like you're overseas doing some work 
and then you're while you're there, you decide to say work at a a coffee shop. Now, what happens with that? So you really you, you need to be in contact with with your tax advisor or your accountant. That's really important. And obviously, we don't give that kind of advice here. Yeah. <laughs> but but you, yeah. you know, we're on the subject of of uh, compensation, do they provide benefits? Like, what if you get sick overseas? I'm glad you meant you asked this question, uh, Carl. Uh, yes, benefits are there, and most of the time is the basically what we call the basics benefits like medical, you know, transportation, accommodation. But let's talk about the medical because it's a very, very important, you know, uh, kind of part of your contract. If you go, as I mentioned, on a permanent open-ended contract, most of the time those airlines they will provide you with local insurance. Some of, sometimes this insurance is only valid in that country, and of course, only when you're a pilot flying their own airlines, that's a different scenario. That will cover your family as well, and it's going to be very, very similar to the U.S. And other things to look at, even within those contracts, is to find out where do they cover you, because do they cover you in basically a public clinics or private clinics as well at your choice. So this is kind of a very important, you know, uh, kind of points to look at your medical contract. On the other hand, there are some countries, believe it or not, till today, all their medicals are free, which is basically a public medical service. There are some private clinics, but those are meant for very, very wealthy people or there are certain things. So even though two different airlines in that country, they provide you with two different uh, contracts and they say, oh, you know, we have, you know, the medical benefits, you know, but if you know the country basically provide public free medical service. So really your medical benefit is not much to count for your total compensation. Right. Uh, so kind of, Really, and, and, and when you want to think about it as well, there are some countries you go overseas, which I, I, I experienced it myself, even the private clinics, uh, and, and I can tell you because I've been in one, and top-notch equipment, top-notch doctors, believe it or not, the doctor visit was $20. Wow. And the doctor, I remember in his office, he has his diploma behind him. He was a Harvard graduate. Wow. Interesting. So, yeah, you know, kind of like you, you look at it, it's like, okay, I'm going to visit with a Harvard graduate physician, you know, at a private clinic, and guess what? He's charging me only 20 bucks. That's so do, do I really want to have my medical insurance part of my compensation, or shall I negotiate my contract? And I say, you know what? I will take care of my insurance, but pay me more. You know what I mean? Right, right. Wow, that's some great advice. Something else to think about, and Ed, that's that's you know why you do what you do is uh, you know these are the, the the specifics that I think are really important, and is to talk to someone like yourself that has a lot of experience with this. Um, you know, Ed, we we've been talking for a while here, and I, I know we we're going to have to wrap up the show soon, uh, but. Uh, is there any other general advice? I know we talked about pay, benefits, et cetera, working overseas. Is there anything else, uh, any general advice you would give somebody if they're looking to work overseas? Uh, the general advice is really, as we talked about, is go with an open mind. You know, uh, try to think about it as an experience, as an investment in your both profession and your personal. Uh, the The way I look at it also is before you make that commitment, try to go and visit that country. Because even for a week, you know, because sometimes when you go and land in that country, when you start dealing with them from the visa process, the immigration process, and then when you land there, you look at the whole city, the country, and so forth, you can have a good, good idea, you know, where, what are you going yourself into? And believe it or not, sometimes, which I tried this in Africa, the airline paid for me to go over there for a week and back. Hmm. And, and that's before even I signed my contract with them. So, so this is my general advice is basically before, you, when you look at a contract, first of all, think about, is it going to be benefit me from a professional point of view? Either you're getting a better airplane or a new, a new type rating, 
you know, or or am I am I getting something when I come back home? It will benefit me. That's of course the first thing. You know, the money we talked about it is enough, and we don't have to talk about that anymore. But in the same, my my really major advice is, especially if you're going to take your family with you, is go and visit that country for a week. You know, and 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 so you can have a good idea what what happens. Awesome. And, and this has all been terrific advice. Gosh, I, and I could speak with you about for hours about this. Is there's, I'd love to hear all your different stories, and it's fascinating, uh, some of the things that you've done. Uh, but I, I tell you, if someone's listening right now, and, and they're really interested in doing this, is there some way they could maybe get with you and, and learn more about living overseas, working overseas, and applying for a job? Yeah, you know, if they go to uh, Cage Marshall Consulting, uh, website, uh, you know, all the contacts that are available there, and they can call and contact me anytime. And uh, really, that's what we do. We try to help everyone they call us, you know, to give them an honest, straightforward advice. Um, and, you know, I can sit down and talk with them as, you know, and answer any questions they may have. Uh, and they can call me or Skype me, or I'm available in the many, many different ways that we, you know, in today's environment. You know, really, we can talk to. But Cage, Cage uh, Marshall Consulting is probably the best way to contact me. Awesome. And, and I'll tell you what, we'll put a link in the show notes at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 80. We'll put a link to Cage Marshall Consulting. Also, uh, make sure you listen to the interview with Angie Marshall. She uh, She's actually a principal there, and she's uh, a wonderful person to talk to. And, and so is everybody there, Ed, yourself, and uh you know, Cheryl Cage, I've worked with her in the past years ago. Just just some terrific people at your organization uh, and uh, did a great, great job. Uh, can't speak more highly about uh, Cage Marshall. I think he's do uh, done some great things, especially for furlough pilots in the past. Um, also, if someone has a question, if you don't mind, I'll forward you the email because we get a lot of questions and maybe you can get back to them on that. So I hope you, you don't mind doing that, Ed. It will be my pleasure. Awesome, Tom. awesome. Well, Ed, thanks so much for being here. Uh, you know, we could pick your brain all day, uh, but I, you know, I think this has been awesome, and and you've been very encouraging, and and I've learned so much from you. Thank you, Carl. I really appreciate the time, and really, I wish everyone the best of luck. Thank you, and and if you're listening right now and you have some questions uh, for Ed or for us, uh, we have a couple of ways that you can get in touch with us, and uh, one I forgot to promote uh, in the past year, but uh, it's a it's our phone number. Our phone number is 347-699-4647. That's recorded, and if you want, we can put that recording online, or if you don't want it to be uh, put onto the show, we will hold that back. If you have questions for any of our our guests, we can also do that. And by the way, that spells Dip My Wings. That's an easy way to remember it, Dip My Wings, uh, 347-699-4647. Of course, you can go to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact and click on the form or send an email, feedback at Aviation Careers Podcast. And of course, all the social medias, you can check out those on Facebook and on Twitter, etc. Um, you know, like I've said before, it's important uh, for you when you're looking at getting into any career and moving forward to do something, do something today to move forward. Uh, you know, of course, if you're driving your car right now, don't do this, but stop, call somebody, uh, find out some information. Say you're interested in this. Say you're interested in, in flying overseas. Jump on the Internet. Go to Cage Marshall Consulting. Send us an email. We'll get you in touch with Ed. Uh, but do something, something small, uh, because you always want to keep moving forward in life in general. Well, folks, this has been terrific. Uh, I hope to talk to you soon. We'll talk to you next time. Safe flying. And like I said, do something now, something right now that can move you forward in your career. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although hosts or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.